Hello, my name is Roanne Weissman, and I'm the co-author with Barbara Kivowitz of Love in the Time of Chronic Illness, How to Fight the Sickness and Not Each Other. Today, we will be talking with Lucy Jane Bledsoe, author of the new novel, The Evolution of Love, which describes the aftermath of a devastating earthquake in the Bay Area of California. Despite the different genres, fiction and nonfiction, we found strong common bonds between our two books, which both explore the question of love in the face of catastrophe. Lucy's book describes an environmental catastrophe, while ours describes the catastrophic results couples face after a frightening diagnosis, a life-threatening injury, or the inexorable realization that a loved one is slipping away physically or mentally. Lucy asked the question, what does it take for people to come together? What dangers must they fend off as they hold on to, to survival? And what lengths will they go to to rebuild home? These kinds of questions are also faced by the couples that we interviewed who must grapple with what happens at the intersection of love and obligation. What does serious illness do to relationships and to love? So during this talk, I'm going to act as a moderator and we'll be posing these kinds of questions to Barbara and to Lucy. So love is at the center of both of our books. So let's start there. So Lucy, can yeah. we talk about the power of love? What happens to love when you feel threatened by trauma, whether it's serious illness or an environmental catastrophe like you described? Well, first of all, I just want to say, I, I know when I started writing my book, I wanted to address the question, what is love? And I just felt a little bit ridiculous asking basically one of the three hugest questions there is. But it just seemed fun to try to attack that in a fictional way. Um, and so all of my characters come at the question and answers in different ways. And I certainly don't answer the question in my novel. I don't know that any of us can actually answer that question, which is why it's so fun to talk about because there's so many ways to look at what is love. But just just the chutzpah of asking that question, I think is what's um, was fun for me in writing the book um, and having my characters gr grapple with it. And it's also why I loved reading uh, your book too, because it comes at it from such a different, I mean, nonfiction so different from fiction. Um, and it's the same way I love hearing painters talk about their work or uh, dancers talk about their work. Every time there's a creative process coming at the same question, it helps me see more clearly. So that's, that's actually true that our books do have that in common. So Barbara, several couples whom we interviewed for Love in the Time of Chronic Illness described the moment of diagnosis or the catastrophic injury of the partner in terms of an earthquake, which is really interesting since Lucy, your book is about earthquakes. Yeah. But our characters said things like, the ground seemed to shift beneath my feet, the footing was no longer solid, everything changed, and it was as if I had suddenly been transported to a new planet with new topography where all the familiar pathways were gone. So Barbara, could you talk a little bit about what our couples were faced in, with and um, how it's like an earthquake? <laughs> Not a physical earthquake, but a mental, emotional earthquake. Well, I, I think, Roanne, for, for us, one of the biggest surprises in the interviews that we did is indeed how powerful a force love is in the context of illness. I think no couple is really prepared for the magnitude of change 
that serious illness introduces. And a partnership of equals can become one of patient and caregiver. And that can happen for some couples overnight if the illness is something like a stroke that really takes away a lot of functioning. Um, but, you know, just, just like, you know, imagine you know, a baby's hand reaching for yours or a puppy laying its head on your lap. Um, when your world starts slipping away after you get that terrible phone call from your doctor who utters the word you fear most to hear, um, and your, your, your sweetheart, your partner, puts her hand or his hand on your shoulder and squeezes. That's the transformative power of love showing up. It can shift us from a state of aloneness and despair. And while it can't make those feelings go away, it can situate those dark moments in a very different context. One that's just more expansive and connected to life. So a husband was in the cardiac unit after having open heart surgery. His wife, who had a chronic pain condition, was laying on a couch in his room with her heating pad. She sighed and said to him, I wish I could do more for you. He replied, just having you here helps me breathe. They both felt stronger and they both felt transported to a world outside of the hospital and to their life as it was going to continue once they left. You know, that's what love can do. It can transport you. So that's, that's a, I remember that story, and that was also a very powerful one to hear about and to write. Um, Lucy, I wonder if you can discuss in your uh, environmental disaster how people coped with this strange and frightening new world, this earthquake that changed everything. And tell us what was helpful and what was less helpful, and maybe how love played into that. Yeah, um, I think one of the mo one of the things that motivated me most to write this novel was to understand that question of um, community in the face of disaster. We are having so many more disasters now, and our communities are being so severely challenged. And um, the media will have us think that you know when there's a disaster, there's nonstop looting, there's factions break into groups and start fighting over resources. And certainly all that happens. But probably what happens more is people come together. And this, it doesn't make as good a news story, so we don't see this as much. There's a wonderful book by Rebecca Solnit called Paradise, uh, I think Paradise in Hell. And she documents a whole bunch of recent disasters and how what happens after disaster, like earthquake, like flood, um, is that people come together, communities come together, they form soup kitchens, they feed one another, they house one another, they take people in. Strangers actually make new bonds. Um, and this is very well documented. Um, and to me, that's a very, very hopeful story. And I wanted to write that in a great, great detail in a novel. Um, and, and to me, it is all in the detail. My character uh, hears about an earthquake in the Bay Area. Her sister's out here. She loves her sister. She want, hasn't heard from her in 10 days. She comes out to find her. And the detail of how community forms is what's really meaningful to me. She meets people who are running a soup kitchen. She starts working in that soup kitchen. She starts um, helping a couple of orphan children uh, who have no connections there. And just bit by bit, a community forms and comes together to endure this crisis. It's almost uh, magical in a way how that happens. We, we had um, one story of a person who 
had a sudden stroke in the hospital and had two young children. And the community came around and the, the, the PTA basically organized meals to be delivered at certain days that the kids would be picked up and taken to their after-school activities. A whole community organized itself around helping this one family. And yeah. that's a small version of what you're talking about. Well, and it feels magical. I argue in my novel um, that it's actually, um, I, I love science. And I think it's biologically part of our DNA to be social community-oriented animals. Um, and I, I like making that argument because it feels uh, solid. And <laughs> uh, I have a bonobo researcher in my in my novel, and bonobos are this little-known uh, ape uh, that uh, then we're of course very closely related to other apes because we are apes actually, who form amazing uh, bonds and work together in communities with a lot of compassion and altruism. And a lot of times it's quoted how humans are much like chimpanzees who are, are a little more conflict driven, but we're also very much like bonobos in that we do have compassion and altruism and those do drive our actions with one another. And this is based in our DNA. I mean, this is a scientific fact about the animals we are. And to me, that grounding in science gives me hope that we, that for the future, basically, that we're gonna work out these, these issues. And Lucy, I really appreciate, Lucy, what you're saying, particularly about the power of, of an apocalypse to um, illuminate those biological bonds and, and to, actually create many, many more opportunities for, for people to join together and, and to create something better, even in the face of disaster. Um, it, I would say in, in, in the context of, of our research, and we, we spoke to many, many, many couples and surviving partners and many, many experts who help these people living with illness. Um, and uh, one of the quotes from a Jungian analyst that we spoke to, which, which I hold on to. He said that illness can be the jolt that removes the dullness from life and unveils the potential. Mm. And we saw that over and over and over again, that people said that had it not been for the illness, they don't think they would have reached the levels of intimacy and honesty and really authentic communication um, without that, without that jolt of illness. You know, so I think we can think of illness as the um, earthquake in your context. And I think um, the aftermath of the earthquake um, in our context is dealing with the medical system, um, which, which is a very unforgiving and sometimes often unpredictable and unhappy terrain. Yes. But, but to your point about there being a kind of biological imperative to find our connection and our compassion. There was one couple, uh, Don and Robert, who um, were dealing with demands of Don's kidney disease. And Don required um, help uh, receiving injections at home and having bandages changed. And that could be a very sanitized and, and even robotic experience. Um, if you just allow the medical side of it to take over. But they inserted their bond, their connection, into even something like changing a bandage. And they, they infused it with tenderness. 
they would put on music when when Robert had to change Don's bandages or give an injection. They would light a candle. Oh, they would talk about the things that they still shared, like their love for music and art, before doing what the illness demanded of them. They asserted who they were first. Yeah, I love that. I mean, that's a, that's one of the deepest connections between our two books, this idea of disaster, crisis, illness. And I think what it brings out in people is the question, what really matters? You know, what do we really care about? Because we have to, we, we only have so much energy and we have to focus on what really matters. And it often is who we love, taking care of people, um, sometimes art, uh, creativity. Um, and I, I, I love, I mean, that's, that is the upside of disaster and, and illness. That's a, that's a great point, Lucy. And it just reminds me of one of the stories in our book where um, the wife needed constant care and the husband decided not to be the one to provide it. So like the opposite of Don and Robert, because he wanted to preserve their romantic relationship for when she was better. Mm -hmm. And so he got help um, from outside, you know, visiting nurses and people who could come in and help with the daily tasks of life. And he just remained her husband. And in the end, she did recover. And while she wasn't happy initially with his decision, I think she realized that it did preserve something that needed preserving. So Wow. That's, yeah. <clears throat> you know, and I think, Rowan, what, what you're saying that makes me um, makes me think of, of the lead character in your book, um, Lucy, uh, Lily, and and how she she had a mission. She was driven by her mission, which was to find her sister in the catastrophe of the earthquake, in the aftermath. And the combination of being driven by a mission and then calling on your own creativity and ingenuity and compassion just led her on this adventure where she connected with such surprising other heroes. Yeah, and I mean, Lily, uh, the protagonist of my book, actually, and this isn't a spoiler because you learn this pretty early in the novel, like, and you mentioned this in, in your book too, that sometimes what happens is her marriage actually falls apart in the disaster. Um, and that's in the very beginning when she realizes that for years her husband hasn't been able to come with her on journeys she needs to go on um, emotionally. And in this case, even physically, where she has to make the choice of take care of him and his denial or go out and search for her sister who's lost. So for her, one very important relationship ends, but it's in pursuit of new relationships and the old relationship with her sister, which she realizes, you know, that she brings to a whole nother level. I think that the power of, of catastrophe, the power of illness is that it's like a, it's like a, a giant spotlight, a beacon that, that shines on both the light and, and, and the shadows. Um, and and I think drives people to the potential for recognizing what their bedrock is, what their truth is. Mm -hmm. And for some couples we talked to, it was love and compassion. And for others, um, like, like Lily and her husband, it was realizing that the marriage was fractured all along. Mm -hmm. um, there was one woman whose, whose husband was a serial adulterer and could be emotionally quite abusive and she stayed in the marriage because of her own background and, and the deprivation she had and because of the children. Mm -hmm. um, and then she was in an 
accident, a car accident, and suffered a traumatic brain injury um, and needed more. And the more was not there from her husband. Mm -hmm. And that was the giant spotlight that illuminated for her that her marriage had been broken for decades. And it also gave her the, the courage to make a change and to extricate herself and realize that alone she could be stronger. The earthquake metaphor, one of our experts said that a catastrophe, a medical catastrophe within a couple, exposes the fault lines in a relationship. So what's there may be hidden, but when illness happens, it becomes much bigger and it can actually fracture the relationship. Or it can, if the couple works at it, as we had saw many examples, it can be made stronger. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I love the image of the spotlight um, and, and shining into the shadows because I think um, both of our books address scary topics. I've had a number of readers say, whoa, I don't know if I want to read about that. Uh, I live in the Bay Area and my friends and community here, we, we all worry about the earthquake all the time or the next earthquake. Um, but what I like about reading your book and, and my book is, for me, when it's scary, I just want to explore it in all the details. I want to shine that spotlight and it actually makes it less scary because in advance, you can look at all the possibilities and what might happen and where people's strengths are and where we might have bonds, make bonds and, and strengthen community in advance of the possibility of the disaster or the illness. And when there is no hope of survival, which happened in both of our books, mm -hmm. I think what people can do in the face of that, and we had a story um, of a couple that was dealing with pancreatic cancer and really a terminal situation, but they found healing and peace and love in even letting go. And I think in your book, that happens as well, Lucy. Mm-hmm, yep. People can, sometimes you can't survive, but you can always heal. The soul can always heal. Yeah, I would say, Roanne, just to add to that story, um, what that couple did and what a lot of the couples we spoke to who seemed to have reserves of resilience did, they practiced what we wound up calling um, active coping. And active coping really means creating hope when the environment doesn't provide it for you. And it means turning what looks like a dead end into um, into the possibilities of choices. So this couple, for example, when he became sicker and sicker and needed to be bed bound, they moved his bed into the kitchen uh, so that he could continue to be exposed to and be part of that center of family life. So I think the, this, this notion of making choices, which, which Lily certainly did at every step along the way in your book, Lucy, um, is, is, is a powerful force for, for healing the soul. I want to ask you both a question about the whole issue of hope, because I think um, it's really hard to write about hope without uh, sentimentalizing, uh, oversimplification, new agey overlays. And, and, and yet I've given myself the challenge, in, you know, I'd say in the last 10 years and more and more when I'm writing fiction, I'd rather write about hope and joy. And everyone says that, uh, uh, storytelling and con is all about conflict and trouble. And I'm getting more and more bored with uh, novels about uh, dysfunction and alienation. It's like, that's easy uh, to write about. It's easy to find. Um, and it's much, much more difficult to write about connection, 
um, and hope and do it in a way that's not sentimentalized or overly simple. Um, so I've given myself the challenge to make that interesting storytelling. And I wondered if you thought about those issues of how to write about hope in a way that felt complex when you were writing your book. Actually, okay. one of our experts said, there is no such thing as false hope. There is just hope. And it can be a way through the tunnel of darkness and despair. Hmm. One, of, one of my favorite quotes of all times is from the Diary of Anne Frank. And it says, where there is hope, there is life. And I think that's something we heard from most of our, our interviewees, that the situation biologically could turn in a dark direction, but they could always find something to latch hope onto. And as long as they had hope, and that could be hope to attend your son's wedding, hope to see your daughter graduate from medical school, hope to be out of pain, hope that you could die at home. Uh, as long as you can attach hope to something, uh, you're, you're in life. Um, I, I, I would love to read, it's short, this extraordinary quote from a man who suffered with a neurological disorder and, and had many, many health crises. And this is the kind of amazing stuff we had the privilege of hearing from the people we talked to. This will give you a little taste of it. He said, there's always something to be hopeful about, no matter what condition you're in. When you have your health, you can be hopeful about having your dreams come true. Once your body fails you, you can rest your hope in your emotions. You can hope that you will still feel love and compassion. If your emotions become emptied, you still have your spirit. And you can hope to connect to something greater than yourself, something that has a light to shine on your shadows. And when the spirit is gone, then you have already become something else. And who knows what hope awaits you there? Yeah, That just that chokes me up every yeah. time I read it. And I'm really interested in the steps between despair and hope. Like, it just seems so often like it's an impossible gulf. And what are the actual uh, bits that get a person from despair to that place of hope? I mean, even if it is the hope to die at home or something like that, like how, how does one get from one place to the other? It seems like it's in, I, I sometimes think of what I write, my fiction as extreme realism. I just like to get, you know, really gather the details that create a realistic picture. And so if I were writing that story, which I guess I have many times in different ways, um, you know, what are the details that lead from despair in a story form, you know, in the, what you see, hear, feel, touch uh, from despair to hope? Well, I think you touched on a bit of it, Lucy, when you talked about humor that in your book and that mm -hmm. people used humor as well. Yes. Yeah. By focusing in what people told us, and I'm sure and you wrote about it as well, by stripping down life to what is really important. What's important is the love you hold between yourself and others, your friends, your family, and building that and sharing in that. And that that's really the most important thing that came out of, at the end in, in your book, that people connected with love. And with storytelling, um, I really believe in storytelling as a cultural glue. It's what holds us together, our ability to tell each other our stories and also actually made up stories. I think imagination is one of the things that makes human beings extraordinary, that we have, we can make stuff up. I mean, it's how we have scientific discovery. It's how we make art. We have these ideas that we can leap from the uh, factual 
details of our life and imagine something new entirely. And I think uh, imagination is so much how we get anywhere um, that's a better place. I think of, um, as I was reading your book, I actually thought of Lily as kind of a, a hope hero. I mean, she had an overarching driving hope to find her sister. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then on her, her, her adventure, her journey, she had so many hopes, disappointed, but yet there were so many surprise pockets and people who, who surfaced to resurrect a hope in a different direction that she couldn't have foreseen had she not committed to the journey. I love that description, Hope Hero. That's great. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that, you know, the, 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 the Hope Heroes who showed up in your book, and, and in our book too, you know, they weren't, they weren't Marvel comic characters. They didn't have superpowers. You know, they, they endured. Um, yeah. And they used, they used their talents. And, and they opened themselves up to potential that may not have seemed uh, certain from the outset. And they just, they just persevered. And they persevered together. Mm-hmm. In talking about stories, I think one of the things that hooks me as a reader are the unexpected endings, which you have plenty of in your book, Lucy. And we had one or two as well in our book, Barbara. You want to maybe talk a little bit about that? <laughs> yeah, I think the story <laughs> we're thinking of is um, Niles and Esme, who... Um, they were opposites attracting. That's right. All these names are, are pseudonyms. There's yes, they're all pseudonyms. Yeah. They're all pseudonyms. Um, they were opposites attracting. He was reliable and solid. She was flamboyant and unpredictable. Um, they were attracted to each other. And after a while, he decided it was too much and he wanted to break up. And then she came down with lupus. And it was a very debilitating course. And she begged him not to leave her. And it was just in his ethical, moral code to stand by her side. Mm-hmm. So they had a decades-long pseudo-relationship where they never got together. They never broke up. He was there for her as a caregiver. She always wanted to marry him. Um, and he never wanted to make that commitment. And then finally, the doctor said to him that he thought she only had weeks left to live. And Niles decided that he was going to make her happy and do what she wanted and uh, propose marriage to her. And they had a marriage ceremony with her in bed. um, And she was ecstatic. And the surprise ending is that it brought them such profound joy that neither of them expected in ways that they couldn't have anticipated. And she lived for nine more months. Mm. They both said that it was the happiest nine months of their entire lives. I loved that story. Yeah. Lots of surprises. Yes. Surprise as well. And like life. <laughs> yes. Full of, full yes. of surprises. Yeah. Yes. And another, um, another commonality between our two books was this notion, notion of merging desperation together as opposed to reaching for strength. Lily decides at one point that she does not want to merge in desperation with another person, but she wanted to reach for strength. Mm-hmm. So Lucy, can I wonder if you can address that choice, that kind of a choice and what it means in a, in a disaster? Well, that was very much Lily's 
personal journey because the earthquake and leaving her marriage and going to find her sister. And even when she leaves Nebraska, her home, and goes to the Bay Area, she doesn't at that moment quite know she's leaving her marriage, although she somewhat knows it. But the inner journey is she's finding her own voice. She's taking control. I mean, she's reaching for her dreams. She has pretty big ideas about wanting to explore a lot more of life than what was a fairly narrow life for the first uh, few decades of her life. Um, and she has that idea that uh, uh, the man that she starts to get involved with, and it feels like a desperate relationship, is very, very different than the relationship with her husband. But they are both, they were both this desperate holding back where she wanted to um, open up to the future and not be afraid and not, I guess it's, it's the choice to not, with both her husband and with Travis, it was, they were responding from their place of fear. And she wanted, she had learned just by the beginning of her big adventure that she didn't have to respond from a place of fear. She could respond from the place of love and courage um, and connection. So it's that moment where she realizes that, no, it, she's not going to go back to a fearful place. She's going to go forward. So the idea of reaching for a stronger relationship or someone who who you can share strength with, is that what you're talking about? Um, yes, although I would want to break it down and say what is strength. And and um, in her case, I think uh, it was going to be able to pursue. I mean, for instance, she really, really wanted to keep one of the things that gave her surprising joy and connection was working in the free meals program with Kalisha and realizing that feeding people, literally feeding people meals who need food was one of the biggest sources of joy she found in her life. Um, and she wanted to do that without cynicism. Um, and, and, you know, finding the actual steps where she could keep doing that. So it was finding her own path, not being in a relationship that uh, curbed her exploration of, of the things she wanted to do in the relationship she wanted to be in outside of her main relationship. And Barbara, I think we found some examples of what Lucy's talking about when we yeah. were working with military couples and um, people who had what were described as hopeless medical situations that they overcame. Yeah, and I think when you're when you're in a dire situation, um, you don't necessarily know in what direction strength lies. All you know is that what what you have is intolerable. And I think sometimes sometimes what leads to finding greater strength is just doing something you're afraid to do. So there was one couple um, they were young, and they their their lives revolved a lot around physical activity, skiing, hiking, traveling, adventuring. And then she came down with a very unexpected, surprising, and crippling uh, chronic pain condition. Uh, and they went the rounds of doctors and were told, "The good news is we can't find anything wrong with you, and the bad news is we can't find anything wrong with you." And over the months, the combination of pain and, and the lack of hope led to her becoming suicidal. But she felt that she couldn't talk about that with her partner because he was already so overburdened with taking care of her and being the sole breadwinner. So she kept a secret. And 
she became more and more despairing and more and more suicidal and more and more hopeless uh, until there was no source of light at all. And she kind of just one day blurted out to him that uh, she had to talk to him about something. And they sat down and she just said the words, I've been thinking about killing myself. And that opened both the Pandora's box and also the treasure chest. Um, she, she spilled all the darkness that she had inside. And the treasure was that she found somebody to, who could hold it with her. She found somebody who wasn't going to, her husband wasn't going to blame her or berate her. Um, or to tell her, no, don't think that way. He just kept saying to her, I love you. Tell me, tell me, tell me what's going on. Tell me more. Until she emptied herself and then they were left side by side, kind of holding the burden together, which gave her the strength to not have to think about suicide as a, as a cure anymore, but to endure the next round of doctor's visits. And they eventually did find the um, the right diagnosis and the right treatment. So sometimes you just have to, I think, take one footstep in the direction that you're afraid of. Mm -hmm. And that can lead to um, possibilities you couldn't have imagined before. Mm -hmm. Which is what Lily did many times in your book, Lucy. I, I think we don't, I think we're beginning to run out of time, but I thought it would be nice to talk about altruism versus compassion because you both addressed that in the books, and it gives maybe a sense of hope for humanity. In yes. So, Lucy, do you want to talk about that? No, I'd like you to start on that one. Barbara? On compassion? Well, all true, uh, compassion versus selfishness, and um, which we've seen examples both of in both of the books. Altruism and compassion versus the opposite, and a pathway for humanity, maybe. That's that's a big question. Yeah, that's a big question. Uh, well, here I, I can start. I mean, just when I'm writing, because I'll I'll talk from a writing fiction point of view. When I'm writing a character, I have to make her convincing. So if she is engaged in acts of compassion or altruism, I have to make that convincing to the reader, and I really enjoy that challenge. But it. But it's challenging. There's a school of thought that all altruism, all compassion is really about self-interest, that you know, you take care of people in the hopes that they'll take care of you. I don't happen to believe that. I believe that people actually have something in their makeup that can be compassionate, that can be altruistic. Um, but it's when I am writing a character, and as I mentioned earlier, I'm really um, challenging myself to think about how that works in our relationships, one-on-one uh, -on -one relationships and community relationships as I write stories, because I think it's actually much more interesting than alienation and dysfunction. Um, I have to think about how that works. Like, what does when Lily is, for instance... Uh, just to use the example I used a minute ago, realizing that she loves serving meals at the church. What does that actually mean? I mean, what is she physically doing? What is she actually thinking? What are the conversations she's having with the people she's serving meals to? And why does that, sorry, feed her, <laughs> feed her back? Um, so that's how I look at those questions when I ask, what what is compassion? What is altruism? Um, for me, it's always in the details of the human behavior that I'm describing in storytelling. 
I lived in Boston for many years, and I was there during the the marathon bombing, and mm -hmm. I was always struck by the descriptions of the first responders, the people, just regular people, who ran towards the bombs to try mm -hmm. and help people. And that's it's without thinking. They just did that. And that that's something to to think about, I think. Well, we think. all, I think most people wonder who we will be in crisis. When, you know, when our partner gets ill, when there is a bombing. I mean, it's like, I don't think anyone can honestly say, are they the person who's going to run towards helping or run away? I mean, we, of course, everyone hopes they're the person that runs towards helping, but it's useful for me to think deeply about these questions because I think it might help more of us be the one who helps. And I really, I really appreciate that, Lucy, how both in the book and, and in your explanation just now, how you so meticulously unpack um, what that means, what compassion means, what it means for, for Lily to be feeding others and what drives that. Um, I, I think for, for, for us, we didn't really have the luxury of unpacking it. It was more presented to us. Um, this, this, this was their experience. This was their fact. And we could, we could kind of unpack it um, retrospectively. Well, but I think also, you facilitate others in unpacking it is what you do in nonfiction. So you're the vehicle in helping them tell the stories that unpack it. That's, that's a good perspective. Thank you. And that, that's yeah. what drives us, Lizzie, is, is do, to do this, is to hear these stories and talk to these people. And we learn so much from, from everything, everyone we've spoken to. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think, I think um, especially in a medical context, people think compassion takes, is going to take up so much time and it's going to be cumbersome and laborious. I'll tell a quick story. Um, so this is about me personally. Um, I also had a uh, chronic pain condition that kind of knocked me out of life for a while and saw many, many specialists. One of them was the chief of neurology at a major teaching hospital in Boston. And um, he came in the room, looked at my scans, examined me, um, said, I can't find anything neurologically wrong with you. Uh, good luck and left. Mm. Um, he wasn't being selfish, but he was focusing on himself and not really on me. Mm. He was sharing his expertise, but that was about it. I had another experience with a rheumatologist um, who examined me, looked at my scans, said, I can't find anything wrong with you. I got up to leave and he said, sit down. Mm -hmm. And I sat down and he started asking me, so tell me, tell me how pain has affected you. And I told him. And then he asked me a surprise question. He asked me, tell me what parts of you pain hasn't touched. Huh. Um, and that... That was a turning point for me. And that encounter took maybe 10 minutes longer than the session with the, with the neurologist. So mm -hmm. compassion, it just means, I think, stepping outside mm -hmm. of you and entering into the other mm -hmm. um, with kindness. And it doesn't, it's not cumbersome. It doesn't take a lot of time. Yeah, and I just, it also makes the person with the compassion so much lighter and feel so much better. I mean, that's, you know, it's, it's, it's actually easier to have compassion than to not have compassion, believe it or not. Uh -huh. um, yes. so and is, is, 
Isn't there some research, I mean, I'm, I don't have my hands on it right now, that I heard and read research that shows people actually physically do better when they're ill, when they are able to have compassion and help others in some way, whatever it is, even some small way. Yeah, no, absolutely. I've read, you know, several books about uh, happiness, and as I'm sure you have too. And yes. one of the key components of being happy is helping other people. I mean, uh, you know, an example for me right now, I'm in a, an enormous amount of despair about the political situation. It makes me angry and upset every day. And I've been going out and registering voters in a nearby uh, uh, community to flip Congress, basically. And I dread going, and I hate it. And I leave every time much, much lighter, because I've talked to people who also care. I've registered a few voters. I feel like I've done something to help. And it, it's it's enormously helpful to me, actually, even though I dread doing it every time. When it, it seems like it's going to be really hard. And in fact, it makes my life much easier to take those extra few hours now and then. So, I mean, I think that's true over and over. And it's, it's something that is hard to explain to people, but I think it's true. Well, you hint at it in your book, Lucy, that maybe this is in our DNA. Somewhere. Yes, I think so. Yeah, I do. I mean, I have to believe so. And when that's where my title of my book comes from, I mean, if you look at human history, uh, there's not a lot of hope there. People have been pretty messed up. We've been a hot mess for a long time with wars on every continent and and every century for as long as humans have been around. And that's not very hopeful. But there are studies that show that there are fewer wars. And if it's actually and, and the the timeline of evolution is much, much longer than the human history timeline. And if it's in, in fact true, as I like to argue in my novel, that love and compassion and, and altruism are actual human traits that could win out over time, we could be evolving to a better place as a human community. And I have to believe that to keep going. A wonderful, a wonderful motivation to write that book, really. Yes. I think I think that's that's the motivation for writing, maybe. Yes, yes, I think so. Yeah, yeah, we share that. That Probably. seems like a good stopping place. <laughs> a, a place of hope. Yes. Lucy, it's been great talking with you. It's wonderful talking with both of you, too, and thank you for all of your work. And we want to read more we want to read more of your books now. Okay, great. I'm Roanne Weissman, and Barbara Kibowitz is my co-author, and our book is called Love in the Time of Chronic Illness, How to Fight the Sickness and Not Each Other. Lucy Jane Bledsoe's novel is called The Evolution of Love.